0: Welcome to the Neville on Fire podcast. Neville Goddard was a 20th century spiritual teacher who offered a profound message. Your creative imagination is the very source of reality. As we learn to use it properly, life becomes intelligible and rewarding. Join your host, Ed, to explore our most valuable asset, the human imagination. This is episode 28, Truth, Finance in the World of Caesar. Point one, revisiting political awakening in relation to spiritual awakening. As I was thinking about today's topic, I remembered that I had once come to the conclusion in an earlier episode that we don't want to spend too much time dwelling on the evil aspects of society, but at the same time, as I said, we we don't want to be in a state of self-imposed ignorance. So if we scratch the surface a little on any particular important issue, we discover that we've been lied to. And isn't this the constant refrain of the investigators, historical revisionists, alternative researchers, anyone with a critical frame of mind, is frequently appalled by the manner and extent to which we've been lied to, um, by the media, by education, by any number of institutional forces. So uh, at its origin, a deception is often found to be quite deliberate, whereas later it becomes a self perpetuating system of values uh, rewards and punishments and norms of behavior and permissible thought so for example you could pay for a degree program at a university and put in the effort and then afterwards discover that um, having read certain sources uh, you see that the experts that you had studied under were um, really ignorant and you um, in this new information, you find that the entire program of study was a fabrication. Has that happened to you? (laughs) So, The prospect of overturning this sort of deception really does motivate you. There's no question. So that leads me to my second point. Um, Essence has a legitimate and a heartfelt desire for truth, even in the world of Caesar. In the fourth way, uh, they explain that the genuine part of a person is called essence as opposed to false personality. So to stay alive psychologically is to keep essence alive. Well, the advice that they give is that essence requires truth for its growth, for its sustenance. It wants to know the truth of the matter, of any matter. So if the higher orders of truth are not within our grasp at a given moment, well, then we'll seek out truth on another level. And I think that is another compelling reason, a deeper reason, probably, why we want to understand this or that aspect of history, or this or that aspect of society, and so on. So as I prepared today's episode in the back of my mind, I was thinking that from the standpoint of striving for a truly transcendental understanding, the conflicts and injustices in the world of Caesar, as Neville would put it. Well, these things should simply dissolve, and they should not have first rank or priority in our use of time and attention. We we should be focusing on consciousness. But I decided in any any case I'm going to go ahead with my intended topic and go outside our usual format on the premise that it's necessary to pursue truth in whatever form. So then uh, at the end, though, what I'll do is I'll circle back around, I'll try to conclude by resolving this seeming contradiction and remain true to the spirit of this podcast series by interpreting the whole matter with Neville's worldview in mind. All right. So with that introduction out of the way, I'm going to proceed now to the main topic, which is truth in the world of economics and finance. So my window into this is to discuss the life and works of Stephen Midford Goodson. He's gone now. He died back in 2018. He was an economist and an investment analyst, and he managed investment funds and worked, I think, also in the insurance industry in Rhodesia. Um, And it was at this time that he began to read critical literature that uh, was, that constituted investigation into the origins and nature of the world of finance. Now, later on, Goodson was active in South Africa as a director in the South Africa Reserve Bank, which is one central bank in the global system of central banks, uh, which is a privately held cartel. Now, during his time within this bank, he had put forward, most notably, a resolution to convert the central bank into what is called a state bank. In other words, a a public bank that would issue the currency, but not require interest on that currency to be paid into the hands of the private shareholders. Well this resolution was not well received, either because the senior directors that he presented it to didn't understand it, or perhaps because they did understand it only too well. So Goodson carried on, not only as a banker, but also he was an historian, and he launched into politics, not, as he said, for the sake of being in politics, but to use it as a platform to promote his information about central banking and the whole system of central banking and its possible alternatives that would benefit the citizenry rather than private interests. So, Goodson wrote a book about his experience uh, within the Central Bank called Inside the South Africa Reserve Bank, Its Origins and Secrets Exposed. He was targeted. This whole book is really in the nature of a whistleblower's report. So the reason that I'm bringing Stephen Mitford Goodson and his works to your attention is that, first of all, uh, it's the universal relevance of the subject matter. This applies to everyone. Second. It's the magnitude of the deception that he discusses that is so compelling. I believe uh, you'll be hard-pressed to find among any conservative, even conservative sources, let's say taxpayer associations or think tanks, any discussion of the nature and origins of the monetary system. Neville had said that ideas that are revelatory need repetition. They need reiteration and restatement. And that's true in the present case, too, because... Anyone who's looked into this question already, into the question of finance, the monetary system, and they've looked beyond the mainstream, has likely seen, for example, the video called The Money Masters by Bill Still, or read, for example, um, The Web of Debt by Ellen Brown, which are already several years old. So even so, I find, um, having you know looked at these things, I find it's difficult to understand the dimensions of the deception and to cogently visualize a desirable alternative. In any case, I'm including in the the show notes the citations for um, all of the works by Goodson that I've been able to find. This leads me to point four, how Goodson touched the third rail, the extraordinary fraud of household and government debt. All right, so what is the core problem that I'm referring to? How is it that he, so to speak, touched the third rail with respect to economics and finance? There's an extraordinary fraud that has been perpetrated on vast populations ever since the establishment of the Bank of England, as it turns out, back in 1694. That's how long this has been going on in one form or another. The model of the Bank of England is the one that has been seized upon to be replicated the world over in a rather tumultuous history that Goodson does relate. So in each case, the central bank somehow often using bribery and coercion, establishes itself in legislation or through royal decree, and having legitimized its position, it then proceeds to operate as the authority which charters the commercial banks with whom we, the public, must deal. Now, the central bank, as I say, charters the commercial banks, but crucially, the central bank permits the commercial banks to create money out of thin air. Let me explain this, Um, and here I'm I'm paraphrasing Stephen Goodson's explanation, so you'll have to go back to his material for the authoritative account. But let's say an individual goes into the commercial bank in order to get a mortgage loan to buy a house. We normally think that the bank accords to this person a sum of money that it has withdrawn from a depositor's account, and that the bank, charging a certain rate of interest on the mortgage, let's say 5% to the borrower, and having to pay a certain rate of interest to the depositor, uh, let's say 3%, will then benefit from a profit of 2% on the mortgage loan. That's our normal understanding. That's the common notion that we're all told. And that viewpoint, that that understanding, is not limited to just the average non-expert. It's actually the point of view, as Goodson points out, of long-standing, high-ranking academic experts. And yet the whole thing is false. What actually happens is this. The borrower goes into the commercial bank. Once he qualifies for the loan, the bank creates in his account the sum required for the mortgage. But where do they get that money? It is simply created on the keyboard as an entry, an accounting entry, and that's it. It is little more than a counterfeiting operation with an air of legality and legitimacy. This originated with the practice of the moneylenders who, at first, issued receipts in exchange for taking in and securely storing the depositor's physical gold. Now, in time, the warehouse custodians noticed that the receipts that they had issued were actually circulating out in the world of business and commerce as money. Since, as they reasoned, the depositors rarely returned to the warehouse to collect their holdings, and since they would not, in all likelihood, en masse uh, demand their physical gold holdings all at one time, it was possible to lend out freshly created certificates, not only backed by other people's gold, that is, the depositors' property, but in amounts far in excess of the physical gold stored at the warehouse. So let's just go through that one more time briefly. The central bank permits the commercial banks themselves to make these fraudulent keyboard entries, creating the mortgage loan out of nothing, out of thin air, as an accounting entry to credit the account of the borrower. Now, over the term of the loan, of course, the borrower will be obliged to repay the entire principal and, crucially, the interest that attaches thereto. Now, let's give a, a rough sketch of the larger picture for this country, where I am. And these figures are from a report by the Fraser Institute. Um, they're already seven years old, but it'll give you at least an idea of the magnitude of the problem. Household debt, of which mortgage debt constitutes two-thirds, is over $2 trillion. Government debt is at $2.5 trillion. Now, in all the discussion of debt in the media, I challenge you to find some examination of the institutional structure, some investigation into um, how this debt is created and who benefits. This whole fraud has been perpetrated over years, over a tumultuous history. As I say, Stephen Midford Goodson has done us a service uh, in doing the research and tracing through the various developments to reveal the fact that many historical events in particular war have this problem that we're discussing at its root so at this point you might ask well you know isn't that the way it's supposed to be what's the alternative what's the right thing to do there are in fact several examples in history and even currently where a banking operation that is operated as a public institution and so not beholden to private interests does not need to charge interest it can simply subsist on nominal fees. The result of that is that the economic indicators uh, in the jurisdiction in the country improve tremendously. The servicing of this crushing debt is eliminated. The swings of the so-called business cycle, which is another fallacy, disappear. Uh, we, get, we see stable prices, low levels of unemployment, low inflation, uh, these are all the order of the day. Now. In several examples, uh, Goodson explains this. He also contends that this is the chief reason behind the wars that have been perpetrated, notably in the modern era, World War I and World War II, as well as, for example, the destruction of Libya. He explains that it is indeed the countries who had state banks working for the benefit of the population and not for a private cartel who are wiped out so that a central bank could be established. Okay, so my research into all of this is not complete, I'm still reading Goodson, and I've come across uh, many different authors and different issues, so what I want to do now is just give you a brief synopsis of some of these alternative voices. What is both interesting and frustrating is to try to make sense of these voices of dissent in, in this fundamental aspect of society, namely economics and finance. So um, to avoid confusion, I'm not going to include links in the show notes to most of this material. Um, I'll just confine it to Stephen Mitford Goodson for the moment, for the most part. But I will give you enough information in this uh, little synopsis to let any interested person follow up. Michael Hudson is one economist, in some sense alternative. He's highly qualified, I think with a a left-leaning point of view who has argued, he's assured us, that debts that cannot be paid will not be paid. And he's quite strong in relating a lot of uh, historical precedents, going back even into antiquity. So it seems then that the reset that is often discussed is in some form or other inevitable. Well, Stephen Mitford Goodson has said, and this was in the talk show interview, uh, this is in the show notes, it's called Straight Talk, a a video clip, uh, that the The solution of the public bank is, quote, the only solution. And in this, he echoes the voice of Ellen Brown. Her seminal book is called The Web of Debt. Uh, They both lauded the example of the Bank of North Dakota. Now, Ellen Brown herself was severely criticized in a talk given by an Austrian economist, Gary North. Um, This is most strange because, um, in my reading of Austrian economics, The the Austrian economists offer uh, such a cogent and um, sensible economic system, which is in defiance of the mainstream Keynesian system, Uh, notably in the person of Murray Rothbard, who was a great scholar, and he explained, in fact, uh, the nature of banking operations in a book called The Mystery of Banking. And he argued for the currency issuing authority to be opened uh, to a free market solution. Then again, the Austrian school has been impugned, been uh, labeled as sort of a controlled opposition by Bill Still. He was the producer of the video that um, you'll see listed in the show notes. He mentions in one interview that the pillar of the Austrian school, Ludwig von Mises, was actually funded by the Rockefellers to come to America. While another commentator, and this is on the thread attached to the Gary North talk, This commentator points out that the Austrians themselves never actually name or criticize directly the banking families. So that in itself is a bit suspect. It's also in stark contrast to Eustace Mullins and his mentor Ezra Pound, So see my episodes 25 and 26 on those two. These two authors are scarcely permitted, unlike the critics that I've already mentioned above, a place in the discussion, because they're among the most vilified and reviled of all the alternative voices. Well, before leaving this brief synopsis of alternative voices in the world of finance, I want you to take note of Major C.H. Douglas the founder of the social credit system. Keep in mind, this has nothing to do with the Chinese social credit system of control. So I'm talking about Major Clifford Hugh Douglas, C.H. Douglas. He was active in the uh, early part of the last century. He joins Goodson in identifying the very same core problem. And he expressed it in the title of his book called The Monopoly of Credit. Now, Douglas produced a very novel, a very original analysis, and he... Uh, discovered that there was a chronic deficiency in the purchasing power in the typical economy. And he proposed a solution for that. And his policies were actually taken seriously and implemented uh, to greater or lesser degrees of success, both, uh, for example, in Japan and in the Canadian province of Alberta. So finally, I'll mention that uh, in an interview posted at Barnes Review, BarnesReview.org, with Wallace Klink, the monetary reform expert in the Alberta SOCRED movement, the social credit movement. We learned that the successors of the social credit experiment in Alberta, uh, while adopting the name social credit, actually betrayed the whole spirit of, uh, of the movement and consigned the printed works of C.H. Douglas quite literally to an incinerator. All right, so with that uh, expose out of the way, uh, as I promise, I will now turn my attention to uh, something of a, a philosophical conclusion. So we're asking, what is the significance of this foray into truth in the world of finance as revealed by Stephen Medford Goodson? Now my reading of Neville is that he would not take the issue of this legitimized counterfeiting at face value. He, He would not even be perturbed in the least at the seeming injustice of it, because somewhere he states something to this effect. If, in an instant, the wealth of the world could be redistributed so that each had an equal share, within a few short years, the picture of wealth distribution would have reverted back to the original pattern. Why? The reason is that the outward wealth of individuals is entirely governed by each person's conception of himself. Now, with regard to opposing criminal action in the world, I can remember Neville saying two things. First of all, by all means, anyone who is aware of this or that social injustice should avail himself of the power of the imagination to correct it. And secondly, remember that physical outward action that is not inspired by the state of mind of the wish fulfilled is going to be a futile readjustment of surfaces. It's the state of consciousness held consistently that has precedence over appearances. To take the psychological view, do not allow a split in the psyche and worry about this false contradiction between spiritual and political awakening. Let's instead take responsibility for the whole thing and relate this injustice back to the ignorance and the darkness that is self-imposed with respect to our own nature and identity. I'm sure Neville would say there's a vast wealth at our fingertips. We have the power to change the aspect of the outer world and all social arrangements. As he says, it is the materialists and the worldly people who are dealing in a fictitious world. By contrast, a person dealing in consciousness accesses the creative source. This gives us the courage to face these worldly problems and not be discouraged by them, but to assimilate them, to exercise a disciplined denial See episode five, if you're not familiar with that term. And finally, to create consciously the solution that we want. Thank you for listening. Remember to check the show notes and subscribe to the Neville on Fire podcast.